All right, good morning, everybody. It is very good to see you this morning, very good to see you. Uh, I want to, before I launch into the message here, I want to kind of pay, uh, have you pay note of something that's in the bulletin. Uh, there is uh, several things in your bulletin this morning. You've got a, let's see, there's a postcard for the Dashboard Series. It's not intended for you, but for you to give to a coworker, a friend, or a neighbor, or family member to be here next week as we continue on our series called Dashboard. I think there's two envelopes. One envelope is for your regular tithes and offerings. Another envelope is for Give 2011, which is what I want to talk about here. And in addition, there's a little green slip of paper that should be in there that gives some instruction on the on the Give 2011. And then there should be a $20 bill in your bulletin. So those should be all the... No, I'm just kidding. You didn't get the 20? I don't, you must have got left out. Sorry about that. Okay, no. Um, uh, 2011, let me tell you what, that's gonna, what that is. Last year, for the very first time, we started Give 2010. That's just kind of a clever name we made up. 2010, and here's what we wanted to do. As a church, we wanted to provide every student at Monroe School and Lincoln School, that's 1,000 students total at those two schools, hats, gloves, and a book that they could go, that they could pick out for their own. And so we asked you, the Livingstones Church, to be very generous, and you, the Livingstones Church, were very generous. You went and bought or gave lots of money to get hats, gloves, and then books that are age-appropriate for some for kindergartners, some for fourth graders. And then we went to Monroe School, and every class came into a room, and every kid got to pick out their own hat and their own gloves and their own book. We put it in a bag, and they went on their way, did the same thing at Lincoln, and it was phenomenal. So that was a lot in terms of just giving and generosity, so thank you for that. But it was so good that we want to do the same thing, or at least we want to do something like it, uh, for Give 2011. That brings us to this announcement. Give 2011. Here's what we're going to do this year. It's a little bit different, a little twist from last year. At Monroe School, there's about 400 students, and we want to give every student at Monroe School a shoebox gift that has all sorts of things inside of it. It will look something like this, and inside will be things like hats and gloves once again because they lost it from last year because they're kids and that's what they do. And in addition, things like candy, like Jolly Rancher gummies, and then there's toys like the Slinky because who doesn't like a Slinky, and like the Star Wars yo-yo, and then there's all sorts of things like tattoos, because we do tattoos around here, and cars to bingo, and I mean, just all sorts of things, and so what we're asking is to help us accomplish giving 400 kids these sorts of things, we need you once again this year to be extremely generous, so if you wouldn't mind, you have two options, go to, uh, go to the stores and buy lots of hats and gloves and mittens, and then put them in the bins that are in the lobby as you walk in, and go to the Dollar General store, the, you know, the Dollar Stores, and go spend $1,000 in there because it will irritate the person checking out behind you and get, like, just toys. We're going to put things like like toothbrushes and a little toothpaste and some hygiene stuff like that. And so if you can go out and just kind of purchase those sorts of things, that would be fantastic. Or if you're like, I don't like to shop, no problem. We could take care of that for you. If you want to just give us money, we will make sure all that money goes to buying those sorts of things. And then we're going to go to Monroe School and give uh, 400 uh, gift boxes like that to every student there. And then we want to go to Lincoln, and we want to have a Christmas party in every classroom. And so we've got a Santa, and we're going to have Christmas elves that are actually from the Livingstone's Church. We're going to go, and we're going to have a Christmas party with the students at Lincoln Primary Center. And so in order for that, now we're guessing that kind of the amount, about $10 per box is what we're guessing it will cost. So if you've got 400 students, that's $4,000 that we need that we're trying to raise for Give 2011. The second thing that came up just this past year that we recognize as a need is the building that's back here. I don't know if you pull in the parking lot, you see a blue building back here. We call it the pit. And what, what's happened over this past year is some phenomenal things have taken place in terms of our student ministries. And what we've come to recognize is the pit is a pit, literally. 
Like, when we named it, we thought it was a cute, clever name to go with the rock theme going down here like we're in a quarry and we got living stones, there's stones, everything. So well, let's call it a pit. Little did we know it would actually look like a pit. So here's what happens. On Sunday morning, uh, the Kids Canyon uses it for the second and third graders. On Tuesday evening, our junior high meets out there for Element. On Wednesday evening, our high schoolers meet out there. And then there's other activities that go on out there during the summer, during recess. The kids are back there. But if environment communicates values, then what we're communicating by the environment of the pit is we don't value anything that goes on in there. And thus, we want to take care of that and remedy that. Now, if you've not been here long, you don't know this about us, but we spend like very little to no money whatsoever into our building. Like, we just don't. Like, some churches are always expanding, they're always building, they're always adding on. We do not. We do not. So this is a unique thing for us that we would actually invest money into the building. But what we recognize, I'll never forget after we launched Element, that next Tuesday, there were about 42, 45 kids uh, in the pit for their element, and they were just, there was no more room, there was nowhere to sit, they were cramped, and it's very obvious, if this ministry is ever going to have a chance of growing, it cannot grow in this space, and so a week ago Saturday, we demolished some walls to open up that space, but now it needs things like some drywall and some paint, some other things that will make it look environmentally as it ought to for those ministries, and so we're trying to raise $3,500 to accomplish those sorts of things. So you add 4000 to 3500 that is $7,500 we'd like to raise uh, or have donated and give 2011. And so we're asking you to be very generous in that effort with us, if you would. In terms of just analogy or, con- or just kind of comparison, our weekly budget is $7,500. So like every week, budgetarily, we seek for... So what we're asking for is, in addition to our normal tithes and offerings, one additional week of tithes and offerings, $7,500, so we can accomplish those sorts of things. So if you wouldn't mind being a part of that, take that Give 2011 envelope, and if you want to put cash in there, or a check, we take cash, and there's two R's in Barrington, if you want to write out a check, or... No, I'm just kidding. Don't write out to me. Write out to Livingstone's Church, and then in the memo section, just write Give 2011, and then we'll know exactly where it goes, and all that money will go to take care of those sorts of things. It'll be a huge blessing for ministry here, and for the kids at Monroe and Lincoln, and I ahead of time say thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Okay, fourth and fifth graders, you are dismissed to your class, uh, and the rest of us, we will continue on our message series entitled Dashboard. Um, Kelly and I, when we were, we lived in Abilene, Texas for three years, and I was doing graduate school there and finishing up my degree, and while we were in Abilene, Texas, uh, we had one car, we owned a Ford Tempo. It looks something like that right there. It was a chick magnet. I mean, it was amazing. Women would just look at me different driving this Ford Tempo. That's hot. And uh, one day, I needed to get the oil changed in the car, so I went to one of those 10-minute oil change places because I don't know how to change my own oil. And so I'll go in there, and they do their thing, and then a little bit later, they go, Mr. Barrington, your car's ready, so they give me my car, and I take off. So I'm driving away from the oil lube place, and I'm on Buffalo Gap, and I'm driving, and out of nowhere, the car starts to kind of act funny. It's like something's going on. It's not right. And then all of a sudden I hear this noise like that. Do you want me to do that again? Did you get that? Did you, you got it? Okay. And then my car dies. Like it just grinds to a halt and dies. And so not knowing what to do, I decide, well, let's start it up again. So I turn the key. Only to, It started only to die a few moments later after the sound. So it finally died in front of an Albertson's grocery store, and I got on the phone, and I called the oil loop place and said, hey, I was just in there. I had the sports car, the Ford Tempo that you just changed the oil in. I don't know. Something might have I mean, I'm thinking they may have knocked a wire loose. I don't know what they did, but surely it's connected. So I'm at the Albertson's grocery store right in front with the dead car. So they send out two mechanics come out in their car to check, check out what's going on, and then about five minutes later behind them comes a guy in a suit. And in my mind, I'm not paying attention to anything, but when the guy in the suit shows up, that's when I go, yeah, something's going on here, that this isn't normal. 
And so they start to have this kind of, it wasn't heated, but there was having an intense conversation under the hood of my car and kind of they were talking and trying to figure out what to do. And then it dawns on me, they kept looking at the dipstick, like pulling it out and looking at it. And I finally figured, and then finally, this is what happened. When I took the car in to get the oil changed, they emptied all the oil, they drained all the oil out, but somebody forgot to put oil back into the car. And then they sent me out without any oil in the engine whatsoever. And what was happening was it was grinding to a complete halt. So the guy in the suit comes up to us and says, hey, listen, let's just, we're going to put oil in it now. Let's take it back to the shop. We'll drain the oil again, put new oil in. You should be good to go. It should be just fine. One of the mechanics later kind of pulled me to the side and said, you want to take this to the dealership and have them look at it because there's a good chance your engine is ruined. So that's what I did. I took it to the dealership, and they said, yes, your engine, although it could still run for a little while, it is ruined, it is burnt up, it's no longer any good. So I had to go back to the oil loop place, get them to sign documents saying they were responsible and liable, and I got a rebuilt engine put into this hot Ford Tempo. And so they replaced the engine. But where the story really picks up is after going to the Ford dealership trying to get them to replace the engine. So they do all that work, and I've got to rent a car, and Kelly only have one car, so it's a big irritant and a pain in the neck. So we finally get the car back, and the next day I'm driving it, and that oil, and that, or not oil light, but the check engine light comes on. And me, I'm thinking, oh, man. But, you know, whatever, I just got a brand-new engine put in. There's probably little kinks. So I take it back, and they take it back in. They try to figure it out, and they give it back to me. And now, like, the air conditioner doesn't work. I'm in Abilene, Texas, which is very hot during the summer. And that check engine light keeps coming on. And I'm not kidding. I went back in five or six different times with that same check engine light. But every time I walked in, it was one of those things where they kind of treated you like it might have been your fault. Like, maybe I did something to the engine. It wasn't really them. And I'm thinking, I don't even touch the engine. I don't know anything about the engine. It's, it has to be something... So like the last time, and I still remember it because I still to this day have not humiliated myself or anyone else in public like I did because I was just so angry and tired and hot. and just, So I walk in, and there's three guys sitting at computers, like they're checking people in and kind of dealing with their issues. And so I walk in, and, you know, the car's got the check engine lights on again. You guys just replaced the engine. They had broken the, the latch to the hood, and it was kind of rolling. I mean, it's just a big mess. And the guy at the computer goes, well, we'll need to run some diagnostics to see if it's really the engine. Like, it might not be them, maybe something else. And I, and I was like, what? I mean, it says check engine. I mean, it's, something is wrong with the engine. And I mean, I'm yelling at the guy, if something's wrong with the tires, does the check engine light come on? No, it's got to be something in the engine, which you just changed, and now it's missing. And I'm yelling, and I'm causing a huge scene. And the manager comes out to try to put out the fire that I'm creating because I'm embarrassing myself and everybody in the room. And he wants to whisk me away to a private room so we can have this out. And, sir, I mean, are you okay? And I'm like, no, these three stooges can't figure anything. I mean, you know, I'm just carrying on just like this. And he finally takes me to a separate room and gives me a rental car, and we'll make sure this is all taken care of. But you know what? It never got taken care of. Like, it never worked right again, and we eventually had to just get rid of the Ford Tempo and get a brand-new car, which probably looked just as ugly as the Ford Tempo. Uh, but that was a... And so since then, what I have learned is any time on my dashboard one of those lights come on, it taps into some sort of deep-seated pain and suffering that I had from my past, and I'm overwhelmed with anxiety because I don't know anything about cars, so I don't know how to fix this. And then number two, I just see dollar signs is all I see. I later found out, actually, there are little sensors all over your car that are supposed to signal you that something's wrong, that says, go get this checked out, because if you wait too long, it could be worse in the end. And as I think about that, I thought, wouldn't that be kind of neat if we had something in, like that in life? 
where we had a little sensor somehow in our life that we're able to go, not that we're yet in major danger, not that something major's happened yet in terms of catastrophic, but little signals, sort of like a personal dashboard that, hey, when things are not okay in your spiritual life, for whatever reason, a little sensor goes off, and I know I need to pay some attention to my spiritual life. Or if something's going wrong in my marriage or in my relationships, there's a little sensor that goes off before it becomes catastrophic. Or in my thought life, that a little sensor will go off when, they, when I know I'm having this thought over and over again. It will eventually lead me to a path that is not good. A little sensor goes off. And so what we're doing over the next three weeks is sort of taking that concept of dashboard warning lights and talking about the spiritual life and in relationships and in our thought life and trying to come up with what are the little sensors that should go off when things go on in our life. And so this morning we're going to start with the spiritual life. And I'm going to give you 12 things. So I've got 12 points. If you've got paper and a pen, maybe you want to write these down. But because I've got 12, I've got to go through them fast. So I'm only going to spend about a minute or two or three. I'm kind of long-winded, but I'll try to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. And so 12 points on these are things that when they happen in your spiritual life should trip a little sensor that gives you a warning light that says, hey, you need to pay, pay attention to your spiritual life. Something is wrong. So number one is this. You can't remember the last time you sought God on a decision in your life. You can't remember the last time you sought after God, his will, his heart, his mind for you before making a major decision in your life. Now, I mean, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about like small, like, you know, after church day, I mean, dear Lord, where am I going, Kentucky Fried Chicken or is it Wendy? I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I mean, I'm talking like those major decisions in life that you ought to be seeking the heart of God, the will of God, of God before you make a decision. Because if you're anything like me, far too often I make a decision, I've already got my plans or I know what I want to do, and then I ask God to bless it, right? Anyone else do that? I want this, I want that, I want that. And then, dear God, would you please bless all these plans? That's a totally different thing than going to God and asking him, should I date this person? Should I marry this person? Should I go to this college? Should I do this major? Should I move and accept this position? Should we make this major financial deal? I mean, those decisions in life, if you can't remember the last time you went to the Lord and sought out his will in those decisions, it should be a little trip in your mind of a warning light that says something's not all right in your spiritual life. And and, and I, it's, it's a matter of holding lightly things that we might be inclined to, that we desire, that we want to, that we actually want to know the heart and will of God. And so in that, Jeremiah the prophet tells the people of Israel through God, this is what God says to them, for I know the plans that I have for you, the plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And I think that verse still applies today. I think God has plans for your life. He wants to prosper you. He wants good things for you. He's got a will for your life. But the way our God works is he won't force that on anyone. He will not force his plans on you. If you don't want that, you can walk away, and God will allow you to walk away from his, his plan for your life. But if you will commit yourself to want to go after God's best for you and God's plan for you, I'm telling you, it will make life so Rather than having to file divorce for the fourth time, if you could just ask God before getting married and seeking his heart and will in it, it will save you a whole world of trouble. And I know for me, when I, could, when I look back at the decisions that were Sam's decisions but not God's decisions, that's when I got in the most trouble in my life. And there were even times when I felt like, you know, the wires aren't coming together and it's very clear God is not. I don't think God is calling me to this. I don't think he's really, I mean, just you could kind of feel, just kind of, when I listened to that, even when I didn't understand it, years later I was able to look back and go, oh. Thank you, God. If I would have actually made that decision or made that purchase or moved into that relationship, it would have been terrible and catastrophic. And so just number one, you can't remember the last time you sought God's will on a decision in your life. Number two, this goes to our prayer life. I would say if God answered all of your prayers, nothing significant would change on the face of the earth. That should be a warning light. Like when our prayers become so small-minded or so self-centered or so kind of, I mean, 
and we do, right, we do this, we get in that habit where you're praying, your prayer life becomes habitual, next thing you're like, you know, thank you, God, for this, thank you for that, thank you for the weather, thank you for the trees, thank you for the plants, thank, I mean, and bless this, bless that, bless everyone, but really, in the end, if God were to say, I'm going to say yes to all of your prayers today, like, everything you ask for me today is just a yes, and if that happens to you, and nothing significant happens on the face of the earth, that is a sign that there's something wrong with your spiritual life, that what we want to do is tap into the Lord's prayer, where he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. So in in the end, we want our prayers to change the course of history. We want our prayers to matter in our community. We want kids at Miami Hills to have a different kind of a life because of our prayers. We want kids at Riley High School to have a different kind of an experience because of our prayers. We want the south side of South Bend and the zip codes of 46613, 46614 with 42,500 people to somehow be changed and different for God's kingdom because of our prayers. We want our nation to look different. We want the world to be different because of our prayers. And if in the end, you find, actually now I think about it, I think all my prayers are pretty much, dear God, please give me patience with my kids because I want to kill them or myself. I mean, and I get, you have those days and every once in a while, but in the end, we want to be bigger than that and greater than that, and it might be a little warning sign that something's going on in your spiritual life that our prayers are that small. Number three, I would say, number three, you don't even know where your Bible is. <laughs> that could be a sign that something's wrong in your spiritual life. Now, I'm not talking... I find Christians beat themselves up far too often about their daily Bible reading, you know, and I skipped today and I forgot, or, you know, it's been a couple days. And I would say, cut yourself some slack the same way that God does. I'm talking about, you couldn't find your Bible if you needed it, because you've been that disengaged with the Word that long. That if that's the case, what that means is, you are not ever engaged in the Word of God, and if you're not ever engaged in the Word of God, then you don't know His heart and His mind and His will as you're trying to discern things for your life. And you will not know who God is, and therefore you won't know who you are and what that means. I mean, so much becomes absent in your life spiritually when it becomes absent from the Word of God. And just to be honest with you, I mean, we're living in a day and age where you can come to church and they'll put all the scriptures on the screen behind me, and you might not have touched your Bible, I mean, I mean, in a very long time. And when that happens, you need to know there should be a little warning indicator that goes off in your spiritual life because then we miss out on what the Bible itself was intended to be for us. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for things like teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we want to pursue what God's will is for life and plan, we won't be equipped for it. We won't know how to be a part of it because we're lacking the word of God. And if you want to pursue righteousness, you're going to fall flat on your face because you're not immersing yourself in his words and what it is he has for us in terms of righteousness. So number three, you don't even know where your Bible is. Number four, your spirituality is exclusively personal and isolated. And what I mean by that is you're a lone ranger Christian. You don't need anybody. You don't want to talk to anybody. You're not involved in any sort of community. Even church can be a very individual exercise. You come in, you sit by yourself and do your thing. You go off and do your thing. I mean, and so if you're Christian, as you look around, you've got nobody around you who's engaged with you in community in regards to the spiritual life, then that should be a warning sign and an indicator that something is off. And it's easy as Americans because, as indivi- I mean, in America, we already are, have a very individualistic spirit. We're very self-reliant. I don't need anybody. I mean, that whole self-serve is, takes off here in a way that doesn't anywhere else because we like to do it ourselves. But if you read through the scriptures, what you find is Christianity was never intended to be a do-it-yourself religion. It was never intended to be worked out in isolation or individualistically apart from other people. In fact, when Jesus calls disciples to himself, what you'll notice is he never says, okay, here's your assignment. I want you to go out into the woods and spend time in nature and you'll get to see a better picture of God. He never does that. What does he do? 
He calls people into community, and he calls them disciples. And the label that that gets eventually is church. See, church is not these walls. It's not a building. Church are those people who have been called out by Jesus himself to follow after him, and he connects them together in such strong language that he calls them family. You become brothers and sisters. You are in community. And just as a promo for what's coming up, uh, I'm looking forward to in January, we're going to start launching small groups here that will be an excellent opportunity to be connected and not isolated or individualistic and to have that community experience. And so I hope you'll be looking forward to those sorts of things. But Jesus calls us into community. And even as you're reading through the New Testament, you'll find at least 63 different occasions. It's the one another's of the New Testament. Like, it's telling you how we live out this, this life in Jesus, and it'll talk about loving one another, encouraging one another, confessing your sins to one another, bearing one another's burdens. It's the one another's of the New Testament, and they're all over the place, and there's signs and hints for us that Jesus never intended for you to do this in isolation. And if you do try this in isolation, you will not be able to see the things in your life you need to see because you have no support around you. I mean, I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that good. I mean, I'm just not that spiritual, and I have to have community around me who's able to see those places in my life and can help me and encourage me in those places in my life that I need that, and if I cut myself off from all of that, it will be, should be a warning sign that flashes in our life that something's wrong with your spiritual life. Number five, I would say that uh, you are consciously excusing sin in your life based on God's grace. And sometimes, sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's subconscious, but... I mean, especially here, I mean, our main message really is that God is crazy in love with you. And that is true. I mean, that is totally true. And, and I want to preach grace to the extent that it even has a little bit of pushback in terms of that seems too, too good. But what I recognize is sometimes we can justify sin in our life and even excuse it under the paradigm of God's grace. Well, he's going to forgive me, so I'm just going to go ahead and do, do it anyhow because I want to really bad. And, and all of a sudden, we begin to justify things in our life and excuse things in our life that we really have no excuse for. And, and that whole justification, it's very easy to justify, and, and I hear it all the time, and I see it in my own life at times, where we begin to justify, well, me and God, we've got this worked out, or I'm a very peculiar, I mean, we begin to think we're the biblical exception, and just let me say clearly, you are not the biblical exception, and, and you and God haven't worked out some special deal, his teachings are there because he knows what's best for us, even if we don't like it or don't understand it, because he knows what's best for us, and sometimes we begin to justify, yeah, but I mean, I kind of grew up in this kind of a family, so that's why I'm this, this particular way, or we're about to get married, so, I mean, it really doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, and we begin to justify all sorts of things that are just sins under the umbrella of, well, I mean, God's grace in the end. Now, Paul even has to respond to this, because when Paul preaches grace, he does get pushed back, and it looks like he even has people ask him, so are you saying we can sin even more? And so Paul's got to answer that. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 6 of Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then he comes back emphatically, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. You got the grace doesn't lead us to more sin. Grace, if anything, rescues us from sin. When we see how good God has been to us, how much he's forgiven us, that doesn't lead us to, hey, let's do more sin. It leads us to die to ourselves and into that sin, which is what baptism kind of serves as a metaphor for. That's why he points it back to baptism. And so grace, in the end, frees us from sin. It doesn't give us permission, consciously or subconsciously, to move deeper in it. Or a little bit later in the chapter, verse 15 and 16, he says this, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Again, by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as a slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? And he goes on, whether to sin or to righteousness. What he's saying is, hey, if you give yourself to that sin... You'll become enslaved by that sin. And we want to live lives that are free in Christ Jesus. And so let me just say, 
And, and most of us deep down know. Like I know sometimes we like to put up a defense, we like to put up an argument, like, but I know deep down we, are, we know, yeah, I think I've justified this. It just has never, uh, deep down somewhere I know this is not, that has not felt right. I know this is not something I want in my life. And that should be a warning light that goes off in our spiritual life. Number six, you have absolutely no passion for the things of God. Like, you can't remember last time you had any affection or emotion or passion for things. I'm not saying you're crying and blubbering all the time. I'm just saying you feel, in your affections you feel no passion for the things of God. You're like flatlined spiritually. And, and I've been here many times. Like, in fact, of my sins, I'm going to put apathy on that list, and there's a long list, but apathy is definitely one of them where I find myself at times feeling very apathetic to the things of the spiritual life. Like, I know I'm not growing spiritually, and I'm not even bothered by that. That's just extreme apathy. And so I was talking to my son about this yesterday. We're talking, and he says, and I was sharing this concept. He says, that's not very good grammar, but the, the language I put was, you don't even want to want to grow spiritually. Because I think if you want to, even if you're not growing spiritually, if you want to, that's a good place to be. Because you at least still want to grow. But when you get to the place where you don't even want to want to grow spiritually, that should be a huge warning light that goes off on your dashboard that says, hey, something is not okay in our spiritual life. And, and, and so when you start, and it's just a matter of honestly assessing. Do, I mean, do I even care that I'm not growing spiritually? I mean, do I? And if in the place you go, I'm not sure I even care. I mean, I'm not, I, that should be for us a... Okay, and for me personally, here's, I mean, this works for me, but I'm not saying it works for everybody. I know this is when I need to go off for like a whole day, like a retreat time, and just in silence and solitude and sometimes of prayer and fasting, and I need God to recalibrate my life and to reorient my life, and sometimes I just need to shake up some of the routine or disciplines so that I can, oh, yeah, wait a minute, I, I think I'm, I'm falling back into a trap that I don't want to be, be in. So that'd be number six. You have no passion for the things of God, or you don't even want to want to grow spiritually. Number seven, your priorities as reflected in your time, Money and speech don't reveal God as top priority. And this is one of those categories where I find everybody can say God is their number one thing. Oh, no, nothing's more important than God. And it's easy for everybody to say that. But the thing is with this, there truly are diagnostic tools I think we can take to find out whether that really is true. So whether you're just saying that or whether it is true in your life. And Jesus gives it to them. And I'd say these three areas. Look at your time. How do you spend your time? Is every ounce of your time spent on you and your things and your work and blah, 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 and no time is ever spent with the things of God or in the kingdom of God or serving in the kingdom? And so if you're just looking at your calendar and you can't find, I mean, even church, eh, we're lucky to make it maybe once a month. I mean, if, if, ever, if your time is so caught up in your thing and none of it is ever devoted to God, that should be a warning sign that says, I'm not sure he's the priority you think he is. Or money is another big one, and the reason why is because for Jesus, he made it very clear. He says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So just take out the bank statement. Look, does it alter the cable bill and to your hobbies and to your bills? To you and, and nothing is ever invested in the kingdom of God. Nothing is ever invested in generosity towards other people. And if that's the case, then it's an indication that maybe God is not the top priority like you say he is. And then number three, I'd say in the area of speech. And I'm not saying you've got to walk around talking about God all the time because those people are obnoxious, right? I mean, I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying... If there's never any overflow of speech that has anything to do with God and God's grace and what he's done in your life, and it, I mean, if you don't ever have any spiritual conversations, that could be a warning sign that, yes, yeah, something's off in that. Jesus himself says, Matthew 12, 34, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in Matthew 15, 18, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. And that's why, if you want to f- see whether somebody's chosen a path of forgiveness or bitterness, it'll be very obvious by their speech. I mean, you'll just hear it in their speech. Somebody who's bitter, it's just always angry, it's always very bitter, and you'll hear it. It'll be no problem. And this is why, like, cussing all the time, like, I don't want to get caught up in the legalism of, you know, can't say a cuss word. I'm just saying, if out of your mouth is nothing but profanity, what that means is there's contempt in your heart, because that's what profanity is, that kind of 
cursing is it's just it's language of contempt for other people, for other situations, for things. If that's always coming out, that's a sign that you've got a heart issue. And what I'd say is for us, if in the end we recognize whether it's by speech or time or money, something else really is the priority, what that means is that God is not the priority. And whatever that other thing is, that's your idol. That's the idol in your life. That's the thing that you've placed at your number one position, and idols will kill your spiritual life. So we want to be very sensitive that those be the warning signs that come off. Number, number eight, your commitment and passion for God doesn't make it past Sunday afternoon. Your commitment and passion for God doesn't make it past Sunday afternoon. This happens a lot here at Livingstone's Church. I mean, it just seems like we've got lots of people who come in here, maybe for the first time, maybe a couple times, and they get all excited. Like, ah, I mean, I'm just, I'm excited. I love God, and I got this new thing, I think, going on with Jesus. And, and they get real excited about church, and then it can't make it past 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. They get distracted by something else or something else, or at least by Monday morning when they go back to school or go back to work, all of a sudden they find whatever passion they felt on Sunday uh, has dissipated. And that would be very depressing to me, and sometimes it is, but I feel better that Jesus told me that was going to happen. Like Jesus, he even has this parable he tells in the Gospels. It's about a farmer who, who casts out seed, and he gives this illustration, analogy of the seed, where that seed, sometimes some of it will land in a very hard path, and thus nothing grows. Birds just come and eat it right away. Sometimes that seed lands in rocky path, and it has a little bit of soil, but it's not very deep. What that means is it quickly springs up, but then as soon as the sun comes out, because it has such shallow soil, it gets scorched in the sun and it dies. And that it seems to be the experience I see over and over here. We cast the seed, and people very quickly, it springs up, and then it can't make it till Monday morning. And when, that's ha- when you notice in your life that you get very passionate, excited about Jesus, but then it doesn't get sustained longer than maybe three or four hours, that should be a warning sign that maybe your life does not have the kind of good soil that Jesus in the end talks about, where, man, it's producing 20 and 40 and 100 times anything that was sown. Those should be warning lights that come on. Number nine, you view God as a cosmic Santa Claus. You view God as a cosmic Santa Claus. And there's lots of things I could say here about just how our view of God in itself uh, could throw us off spiritually. Like, if God is always angry at you, that's going to throw your spiritual life off. If God is always disappointed in you, that's going to throw I mean, listen, none of us like to be with somebody that we know doesn't like us or is disappointed in us, do we? No, I mean, nobody wants to be that. I mean, it is very tense and awkward to be with anyone that you know doesn't like you. And the same thing will be true of God. If you think he doesn't like you and he's always angry with you, you'll spend no time with God. But here is where we view God as Santa Claus in the sense of, He's there to give us the things that we want in life, the good things in life. And he's kind of our genie in the bottle where we kind of rub it and all of a sudden God appears. And we begin to use God as some sort of spiritual magic formula to prosperity or whatever, whatever the fill in the blank is. And in that, that should be a warning. When we begin to use God like that, there should be a warning light that goes off in our spiritual life that something's not right there. Number 10, I would say this. When you kind of, uh, when God becomes a check on your to-do list, there should be a real warning sign that comes out of that. Or another way it says, is, um, kind of as a corollary, when you begin to take pride in your spiritual life, that should be a warning light. It, when the moment that, and I don't want you, I'm not saying go be discouraged about your spiritual life. I don't want that. Oh, it's miserable. I mean, I don't want you to be there. But the moment that you're thinking to yourself, you know, God and I, we're really kind of grooving. I mean, I'm praying all the time, and I'm in the Word all the time, and I'm making casseroles for sick people, and look at me. I'm like, this is, I'm like this. And like, what happens is then you start to feel real pride in your spiritual life. The temptation is you'll move into that land of Pharisees, and then you'll begin to look at other people, and you'll note, I bet, I bet they don't pray as long as I do. I mean, I bet my prayer life is at least three times long. I bet, I bet I've read through the Bible. More. I mean, and this is what happens. You start to judge people, condemn people, and those should be little warning lights. Whenever we kind of have that pride in our spiritual life, 
uh, those should be warning signs that, hey, you're moving in the wrong direction. And, and sometimes that's why, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, you ever met somebody, they fell in love with Jesus, they started to devour the Bible, but then they were meaner. Have you ever seen that? Like people, they know the Bible and they're really into the Bible, but they end up being mean and they're just mean at everybody. That's how that happens. Instead of being humble in it, not to, they, all of a sudden they took pride in what they knew and their knowledge and they just became jerks. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's what it was. And then, but the other thing for me is that well, God becomes that to-do list. And some of you might be like, here's where I, I mean, this is a struggle for me because I'm a type A kind of dude. Like I love pl- to plan things out. I love, anyone else type A? Love lists. You love lists. Anyone love lists here? A few of you? Oh, I love, no, nothing, I mean, I love checking things off of a list. Like, I'll put stupid things on my list that I'll know are easy to come, just like so keep checking. I'm checking away, right? But what, there should be a warning light that goes off when you begin to recognize God has become for you something on your to-do list that you check him off and you feel relieved at the end, right? Because when you fall in love with somebody, you don't feel relieved at the end of the conversation. You want to keep talking. Now, imagine like this. Let's say, husbands, uh, you see your wife in the morning, and you know, you're meeting in, in the kitchen, and you give her a kiss, and you say good morning, and then you turn around, and you check that off of a list. I mean, how's your wife going to feel? She's like, she doesn't want to be a checklist, a thing on your to-do list, right? She wants to, that you kissed her and said good morning out of the passion of your heart and your affections for her, not because it was some, oh, i got to discipline myself to do it. And sometimes I think we could do that to God where he becomes just a little, another check off of our to-do list, and we feel relief, and now I can move on with the rest of my day. Like, I got my God thing done, check, and now I can move on with the rest of my day. And like God's thinking, no, I, want, I would like to go with you on the rest of your day. You don't have to check me off. And, and, and so that's another warning sign there. Um, number nine, so we're at 11, number 11, here we are. Um, you keep going back to a place that God is no longer calling you to for spiritual growth. You keep going back to a place that God is no longer calling you to for spiritual growth. Now, this has been at least my experience in life. Like, all of us have seasons where we kind of grew spiritually, and we can remember what happened that season. Either it might have been a group of people we were with that were challenging us in a way spiritually, or maybe it was we got in the habit of reading these kind of books and having this kind of devotional uh, life. And then what happens is kind of time goes on, we're not in that same pattern, and then when we want to grow spiritually, we try to go back to that exact same thing, but now it's not working in the same way. I don't know, has anyone else ever experienced that? See, I've experienced that many times where I try to go back to what once used to work, and then I'm like depressed, like, how come it's not working anymore? I used to, well, I read these kind of books, or be in this, or do these sorts of things, that would help me grow spiritually. And I would say it might be because God isn't calling you back to that. He's got something else for you, something new for you. This might have been just fine for you when you were kind of more mature or maybe spiritually young or a babe, but he doesn't intend this for you for the rest of your life. He's got bigger things, greater things. And, and, and so if we keep trying to go back, we might find that, yeah, we aren't reaching spiritual growth in the same way any longer. The prophet Elijah had this issue in his life. And it's in 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. He's got this, he has this triumphant, victorious moment where he, like, defeats all these prophets of Baal. I don't know if you remember the story. They're all cutting themselves and asking Baal to do it, and Baal never shows up. Then Elijah steps up, and he calls fire from heaven, and it consumes the sacrifice. And then they slaughter all these prophets. So it's this victorious victory that Elijah has. And then the next moment, Jezebel threatens him. Like, the woman Jezebel goes a threat. And Elijah freaks out. Like he gets all, I think mean, he just saw this, but then he turns and he's scared and he's nervous and he goes running and he doesn't know where to go, but he goes to Mount Horeb is where he goes. Because at Mount Horeb, he has met God before. God has been there for him before. Now Elijah already has a message. God has already said, Elijah, I need you to go here and do this, but he doesn't. He goes back to Mount Horeb because he's afraid. Now in God's grace, God does meet Elijah on Mount Horeb in a small, still voice. But in the end, what God says basically is to this, then, then a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Because he didn't call him to Mount Horeb, he called him to something else. And he kept going back to Mount Horeb for comfort, 
but God was saying, I'm not calling you back here. I want you to go here. And that might be the case in your life. If you keep going back to a time that you remember, God might be saying, well, I'm not calling you here anymore. I want you to go in this direction. And that's where it's time to have the conversation with God. Okay, this is where I feel like I'm at spiritually. What, what do you want from me? It might be time to kind of really look inward in some time of silence and solitude and figure out what God has. So that's the other one. You keep going back to that place that God's learned calling you to for spiritual growth. Number 12, the last one here, spiritual lows are overly discouraging. The spiritual lows in your life are overly discouraging. And this is why I think, I mean, I just, let me just tell you as your pastor, um, your life with God, you are going to have mountain peak times and you're going to have valleys. Nobody lives on a mountain peak with God. Nobody. And if you walk into it with that expectation where you remember what it feels like to be on a mountaintop, then when you're no longer there and now you're in the valley, it's possible you could become overly discouraged in it. And when you become overwhelmed in discouragement in the valley, you'll end up being in the valley far longer than I think even God intends for you. So here's what you need to know. No one in the Bible, no great saint throughout all of church history has ever lived on a mountaintop. They have all experienced the desert. They have all experienced wilderness wanderings. They have all experienced what St. John of the Cross is, the dark night of the soul. When it happens, that could be God right there. When it happens, don't be overwhelmed in it. Don't be discouraged in it. Know that valleys come. Just when you're there, just keep talking to God about it. I'm in a valley. I don't know why I'm in a valley. Why I'm in a valley. And this is the final thing. You'll need, to, you'll need to remember this. God is with you in the valley. You won't feel it. That's why you're in the valley. <laughs> I mean, it won't feel like it. But you need to know and have faith that God is with you even in the valley. And when you're in that valley, don't let that be overly discouraging to you. Just know this happens in the spiritual life, and we're going to have an upswing, and I might find myself on a mountain peak just around the corner, but just know that's the case. And so in the end, you know, I don't know anything about cars, and so if you need me to fix your car, I can't do anything about that. I know a little bit about the spiritual life, and here's what I know. If any of these warning signals are coming on, like there's a sensor right now in your spirit going, okay, yes, that's definitely going on in my life. I know somebody who's great at fixing the spiritual life, and He's a carpenter by trade, but somehow along the way, he figured out how to do the spiritual life really well, and that is Jesus. And if you sense these are going on in your life, here's what I'd suggest. Just immediately start talking to Jesus about it. I mean, that's a, don't freak out. Just immediately start saying to Jesus, I'm not sure I'm growing spiritually, and I'm not sure it even bothers me that I'm not growing spiritually. And, and just start to have that conversation. Or say things like, Jesus, I need you to help me find my Bible because I don't even know where it is. And I mean... Have those conversations with Jesus and tell him exactly what's going on and see what he does by his spirit to move us to a good place, to that place in the spiritual life. See, I like that ringtone better. Who was the other one? That was a, that's a much better one. Kind of peppy. Then in the end, God wants us to have a great relationship with him. He wants us to pursue him. He wants us to have a greater spiritual life movement towards the spiritual life. There's a story told about an old couple. They were in a pickup truck uh, and they pulled up on a, in a red light to a, another couple, a young couple in another pickup truck. And the older couple, as they're watching this younger couple in the truck, they notice, I mean, the wife knows especially, that in the younger couple, she was sitting like, you know how they're like practically sitting on his lap and right next to him in the truck, and he had his arm around her, and they were all snuggled together. And, and so what happened is the older lady starts talking about how we used to sit like that, and you used to, I mean, I used to sit right next to you, you used to put your arm around me, and I mean, she's going on and on. And about it. He wasn't saying a word, but she's just going on and on about how they used to sit like that and how wonderful that was. And so finally she finished talking, and he just sat there just at the red light, and he just said, well, I'm not the one who moved. And that's sometimes true with God, in that we have this, oh, it used to be this, and I used to feel like this, and I don't feel like this. And I'll tell you, God's only response is, I'm not the one who moved. 
And then if we start to feel that distance, that separation, it wasn't God who scooted over, we scooted over. And his invitation is, you can come right back to where you were, that he longs that for that with us in terms of relationship. And so when we sense that distancing, let me just say, God longs to have that back. And if we talk about that, I think he extends that to us. So that's my 12 points, and I know there could be like 50 others you could add. I mean, this is just not exhaustive. Like, there are other things in your life that you could say, here's a warning. I know in my life when this happens spiritually, that's a warning light. But what I want to do is just for a moment, I want to ask the Spirit of God just to be at work among us this, this afternoon, I guess the afternoon now, and uh, to whatever, it, whatever is in your life that you need a warning because, yeah, this will not end well. It's like the car. Yeah, you should get this fixed now or it's going to be big trouble. And so let's ask the band if you want to just kind of come back up so you can prepare for the next song. Let's just pray and ask the Spirit of God uh, to kind of give us whatever indicators in our life we need that our spiritual life is in need of attention. So, Father, we come to you and are grateful that you are a God who is gracious and kind and merciful, but you're also a God who wants to extend to us relationship, that you want us to grow closer to you, that you want us to grow in the things of you, that you want a greater manifestation of your kingdom to break out in our life. And we don't want to do anything to thwart that. And so if there are things in our spiritual life, if there are things that are in our heart and our spirit that ought not to be there, that's kind of sabotaging us or tripping us up, then we want your spirit to be at work to not only warn us, but to correct us and to put us on a new path. And so this afternoon, we lift up to you those things. We ask for your work, your ministry to be uh, in our life through your spirit, just to give us those things. And we will count it as your grace that you still love us and care for us and long for us good things. And that's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let's close in a song.